Chapter Eleven of The Real Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This habit of saying mordant things about people was one of Wilde's most unfortunate characteristics. I fancy that even Willie, proud as he was of his brother and truly affectionate as he was by nature, was not without some feeling of resentment against him for the unkind things that Oscar had said to and about him a resentment which may possibly have diminished for him at least the appalling grief that all oscar wilde's friends felt at his terrible downfall i remember that during those dreadful days at oakley street when oscar wilde was out on bail at his brother's house willie did not seem to realise the terrible danger in which his brother stood it is quite possible that he never anticipated his conviction at any rate he violently opposed any suggestion that oscar should take to his heels as more than one of his friends was urging him to do he was particularly anxious lest my influence with oscar might bring him to flee for i had very definitely stated that i considered that that was in view of the wild prejudice that existed against the accused man the only sensible thing to do oscar is an irish gentleman he used to say to me and will stay and face the music one morning he came down to breakfast and made the announcement that he had decided that i must be induced to return to paris and he added if he hasn't the means to travel i must sell my library to get him his ticket in this attitude i saw that he preferred to his brother's safety the family honour i am not blaming him for that but would have welcomed a little more solicitude for oscar and a little less of the spartan lack of altruism his singularly high spirits during the whole of that mournful period struck me as peculiar he was joking and laughing all the time he greatly enjoyed the mixture of metaphors into which he had fallen when first describing poor oscar's arrival at oakley street on the night of his release from prison after he had been hounded from one hotel to another by lord queensbury's gang he had informed me that quote, oscar came tapping with his beak at my window and fell down on my threshold like a wounded stag unquote. he repeated it frequently to oscar's intense enervement he did not seem to care to spare his brother's feelings he was constantly referring to some letters which he had found addressed to oscar by one of his friends from italy in which a curious medley of attractions was set out there was moonlight on the orange groves and there were other inducements which need not be particularised it is i have always held very unfortunate that those letters were not preserved they would have established that the alleged corrupter was a man who had refused to be corrupted i can remember also how one day at lunch he made oscar wince as though with a branding iron by relating how he had had a discussion that morning with a cabman and had challenged him to fight quote, on queensbury rules i thought it a fine thing in my friend that he showed no resentment whatever at these examples of tactlessness he seemed profoundly grateful to his brother for his hospitality and protection and in his heart of hearts i do not doubt that he was glad to have willie between him and friends like myself who wanted him to yield to his accusers to seek safety in flight and in the eyes of his enemies forfeit his honour 
on more than one occasion at oakley street he said things that showed that he felt sorry to have hurt unwittingly his brother's feelings in the past i as often told him that i did not think that he had ever wilfully hurt anybody's feelings but that he was so fond of epigram and so skilled in language repartee and retort that if a smart thing was to be said say it he would no matter how it might sting the person it was aimed at how many people had harboured grievances against him for having been made victims of his fondness for smart sayings was shown by the extraordinary number of enemies who emerged from the obscurity of their lives when he fell men seem to be able to forgive everything except injuries to their vanity hell knows no fury here also one of oscar's most mischievous enemies in active aggressiveness was an actor whom he had criticised for appearing in a new york drawing-room wearing his gloves during an afternoon call another actor charles brookfield who in january eighteen ninety five had thankfully accepted a part in oscar wilde's play an ideal husband was as mr stuart mason informs us quote, largely responsible for collecting the evidence which brought about wilde's downfall some weeks later Unquote. stuart mason adds quote, after wilde's conviction brookfield and some friends entertained the marquess of queensbury at a banquet in celebration of the event in revenge for this some of wilde's admirers entered a protest at the prince of wales theatre on the night of charles hawtrey's revival of charles brookfield's play dear old charlie on twentieth february nineteen twelve shortly after the latter's appointment as joint reader of plays Unquote. brookfield's incentive may have been a real friendship for lord queensbury but there was brodnade in it also and doubtless resentment for one or two remarks which oscar wilde had made about his representation of himself in the poet and the puppets oscar had had this unfortunate habit of medicence all his life it is the characteristic of his which his schoolfellows at portora first recall he was the inventor of nicknames for the school non-flattering at portora also he displayed that aloofness which distinguished him in after-life and which raised up so many enemies to him the ordinary individual the elderly individual the ugly those suffering from physical illness or disfigurement were very soon made to feel that oscar wilde did not desire their acquaintance or their company on several occasions i have seen him act towards such in a manner that might in a person of less importance have been considered as downright discourtesy and rudeness i can't help it he used to say i can't stand those sort of people how can you know such a dreadfully ugly man he once asked me after he had cold-shouldered a friend of mine whom i had introduced to him at charles street he would certainly have been rude to socrates and indeed after spending some time in the company of a poet who was the physical reincarnation of socrates i mean paul verlaine combined with the habits and laissez-aller of diogenes he complained bitterly of the discomfort he had felt at having to sit at the same cafe table with a person so unattractive and this was the great verlaine sweetest of poets most winsome of those men-children who have never grown up 
he was perfectly truthful in his answers to mr carson about the kind of people he liked and disliked after his hour in verlaine's company at the cafe francois premier we were walking down the boulevard saint michel when we were accosted by a young acrobat an exceedingly graceful and handsome young fellow he was carrying a red carpet and he asked us to patronise him for he said je travaille très bien i like that said wilde i like his i do fine things that is what every artist ought to say about himself this lad quite takes the taste of verlaine with his hideous squalor and his bagno humility and self-dedication out of my mouth i will patronize this lad so he sat down on the terrace of a cafe on the place saint michel and bade the acrobat perform bestowed largesse on him and afterwards made him sit at our table where he let him order what he liked and carried on an animated conversation with him for a very much longer time than i thought necessary or wise and this in spite of the fact that the spectacle of this elegantly dressed and remarkable-looking man sitting in front of a cafe at the same table with a tumbler in spangled trunks attracted the attention of all the passers-by he did not seem to mind being noticed under such circumstances any more than later on he had no hesitation in showing himself at public places of entertainment with the extraordinary companions who afterwards testified against him yet on the previous evening he had precipitately fled from a box at the skating music hall because he noticed that none of the other boxes were occupied and that he was attracting attention on this account i referred to this after we had left the acrobat and were walking home and he said that he had hated to be stared at when sitting in the box because there curiosity was aroused in him on account of his supposed wealth being the only occupant of the high-priced loge but that he did not at all mind being noticed because he was in the company of a social outcast was rather proud of it in fact while he often went out of his way to illustrate his theories and to force them on public attention he avoided anything resembling ostentation for his lucullian repasts at a restaurant he preferred a private room he did not want to be noticed as a man who could spend money freely but he did not mind sitting with an acrobat at the aperitif in the view of all paris so also when he went with ordinary people to a theatre he would prefer to sit at the back of the box but when he was in company of curious folk he liked everybody in the theatre to notice it towards the end of his career in london i heard some extraordinary accounts of public appearances he had made in the london places of entertainment it has often occurred to me in thinking over those times that constance wilde was quite justified in telling me that her husband at the time of his arrest had for some years previously been out of his mind certainly just before his arrest he was acting in a manner entirely alien to the oscar wilde whom i had known for so many years the laying on of an information against lord queensbury and all the noise and display that surrounded that miserable act were sure signs that the man was not himself i remember the dismay with which i read that oscar wilde in his role of prosecutor had driven up to the bow street police court to give evidence against the marquess in a carriage and pair a voiture de grand remise 
which was to figure subsequently on more than one occasion as in the precipitate withdrawal from the old bailey and the drive to the cadogan hotel from which he was to return in a four-wheeled cab between two detective inspectors and that much advertised excursion in bosey's company to monte carlo before the queensbury trial when effacement and discreetness seemed indispensable but the man seemed altogether transformed and spoiled one heard of his engaging an under-butler and wondered why no groom of the chambers in which connection it is curious to note that oscar wilde never employed a valet even in his days of opulence one would have fancied a valet likely to be of far more service to him than an under-butler or even than a butler pure and simple especially as he rarely dined at home and certainly never owned a cellar but i never knew him to have a man to attend to him and it now occurs to me that i never asked him why he dispensed with a servant so essential to a man of fashion who likes to turn out faultlessly groomed amongst the fellows who were brought to give evidence against him there were two gentlemen's servants and it seems to me that if he had desired their company for the purposes alleged his evil designs might have been very much more easily effected without risk of detection or even comment by engaging one or the other of them to act as his valet that is doubtless what had his intentions in seeking their company been such as were described by the prosecution he would have done oscar wilde rarely if ever spoke to me of his school days i understood that his reminiscences of school life were that it was essentially tedious and that like most of us he longed to grow up and be out in that world where as a matter of fact one first begins to realise what tediousness means i never heard of his having any fights i imagine that his bulk to say nothing of his manner secured him immunity from assault in spite of the fact that his justifiable assumption of superiority his distaste for games and the fact that he insisted on always wearing a top hat must have marked him for the vengeance of the school bullies i fancy that willie may have stood between him and these willie was intensely proud and very fond of his bookish and clever brother and willie was very handy with his fists it is recorded by the way that he was very quote, superior in his manner towards willie his conduct was uniformly good and only one occasion is remembered on which he violently misbehaved himself by an open defiance of the headmaster old steel whom it appears he quote, cheeked something awful this must have been one of the very rare occasions in his life when he let temper get beyond control i never once saw him in a temper during the seventeen years that i knew him he did not particularly distinguish himself at school but it was noticed that he could master the contents of a book with extraordinary rapidity and that what he had once read he never forgot he does not seem to have attempted any writing as a boy the kind of writings i mean that puerile pens indulge in poetry and so forth but his mother used to speak with delight of the beautiful letters which he sent her from portora school which she said were wonderful and often real literature one such letter at least is extant and has been referred to in these pages as a schoolboy so he told me he had no spirit of adventure no wish to run away to join the pirates to hunt red indians to form secret societies to go to sea 
to be wrecked on desert islands or to do any of the things which most boys are so very anxious to do he once told me that he had never climbed a tree that he never collected anything not even postage stamps and had always regarded collecting things as the essence of tediousness besides which he had no sense of ownership no desire for property he satisfied himself with reading of the adventures of others and devoured the english classical novels he was all along too bulky to be a boy of action he quote, used to flop about ponderously is what was said of him no doubt he had at heart a very solid contempt for his schoolfellows one can imagine the genus and it may be noted that apart from the two wilds none of the portora boys of those days has ever distinguished himself he seems to have liked to look nice and better dressed than his associates from whom he further differentiated himself by allowing his hair to grow long i think the best friend of his school days was his mother at home to whom he wrote his wonderful letters he would be thinking of her most of the time and no doubt the fact that she took him on continental travel in his holidays satisfied the wanderlust that is innate in every boy and kept him quiet and apparently apathetic in term time one does not hear much of his being greedy at school as boys are but the letter referred to shows that he appreciated a hamper from home he took such a delight in later life in the pleasures of the table and was a gourmet so pronounced that the wild of portora school might have shown some penchant that way but i have not been able to get any proof of his having done so when one has talked with former pupils of the school with former masters and people about the place who may have been living there in the sixties even those who were ready to speak about oscar wilde seem to remember very little about him he was so reserved and stood so much aloof that he seems to have passed through the school without attracting any particular attention possibly some might be able to tell one things but prefer not to speak about him i have noticed in ireland a great reluctance to speak about oscar wilde and this is not from any condemnation of the man of whom all irishmen i think are proud but from a want of confidence in the motives which prompt the questions when i was writing my life of wilde i found many people in ireland who could have been most useful to me but these refused to say a word about him thinking that any englishman could only write about wilde to attack his memory indeed one new york editor a certain laffan did actually in a long editorial in the new york sun charge me with having committed a mauvaise action in writing the book at all a certain sullivan m p one of them who had been a great friend of the wilde family wrote me a most indignant letter when he heard that i was wishful of writing a life of wilde he seemed convinced that i as an englishman could have no other object than to condemn the brilliant irishman of whom his countrymen were so proud it was of no avail that i pointed out to him that on the contrary my object was to show that oscar wilde was not the monster that many english people wished him to be remembered as and that i thought a useful and patriotic purpose would be served by showing foreigners that we do not have men of genius in great britain who do not necessarily belong to the teratological domain an impression which with regard to our men of genius we english have sedulously fostered abroad 
but it was in vain none of the people who knew oscar wilde as a lad and a schoolboy would consent to speak about him let him rest in peace was their answer in other words let his friends remain silent while his innumerable enemies keep alive the horrible legend which they invented End of chapter 11